Now turn with me in your Bible this morning to the book of Philippians. <coughs> Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read together the first 13 verses. Let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Amen. We'll end the reading there. We trust and pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 1 and the verse 6. It reads as follows. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And my theme today is the grounds of the Christian's confidence. Now Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 is a well-known verse. And one that has brought tremendous encouragement to the people of God down through the centuries. Remember the apostle Paul is writing to the saints at Philippi. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, what sort of place was Philippi like? What was it really like to live there in the first century? The Bible really doesn't tell us much about its location. doesn't really tell us much about its culture or its cuisine doesn't tell us whether it's really a, a wealthy merchant city or not. But what we do know is that it was a difficult place to be a true child of God. And if you read Acts 16 very carefully, 
you will discover, first of all, that there was not a specific building in Philippi for prayer and worship. There was no synagogue for the Jews to worship in there. We're told that when Paul and company arrived there, they went out of the city, out to the river bank, where prayer was wont to be made. Why? At the river bank, I'm suggesting that there was no actual building inside the city. Why? Had the city fathers no stomach for the things of God? Secondly, we learn that Philippi was a place of satanic occultist power and influence. Remember the demon-possessed girl? A girl possessed with a spirit of divination who could tell the future, who could predict events and happenings, energized, of course, by the power of the devil. And uh, she was making loads of money for her masters. Uh, Satan, of course, was very busy in the city of Philippi, deceiving many, destroying the lives of many. And when that girl actually got saved and was gloriously changed and transformed, remember what ensued? There was a riot against Paul and Silas. The people were mad. They laid hold upon the men of God and gave them a, a, a good thumping. You see, Philippi was a place not only where there were no buildings for worship, but it was a place where Satan was busy. There, there was this satanic, uh, occultic influence that seemed to be the order of the day. On top of that, it was a place of lawlessness. You think of the riot. There was no fair trial for Paul and Silas. There was no being brought before the judge and the magistrate. There, there was no jury. There was no charges made, just this ferocious mob that laid hold upon them. And even uh, when the magistrates did get them, they, they stripped them and they gave them a good beating and they threw them into prison uh, in Philippi. It had no prayer meeting room, but it had a prison. So that shows you how lawless place that it really was. And also it was a place of ungodly hard men. Think of the Philippian jailer. And when he got the hold of Paul and Silas, he put them into the inner prison and put their feet in the stocks. You see, Philippi was not an easy place to be a true believer. It was not an easy place to, to plant a Christian witness. It was not an easy place to start a church. Yet amazingly, in the grace and purposes of God, there was a church in Philippi. There was a congregation of believers there. I remember Paul is writing to that church nine or ten years after the formation of the congregation. And they lived in a hard place. And they faced hard times. And it wasn't easy. It was difficult to be a Christian. And yet by the grace of God, they continued and they carried on their witness and work for Christ. And Paul is writing to tell them to be joyful in the midst of all that they faced. Joy, of course, is one of the key words. And as I've already told you, Warren Wearsby wrote a book entitled Be Joyful, addressed to the Philippian church. And here's the Apostle Paul in his introduction. And he has told them that he is thankful to God for them. He has told them that he's praying for every one of them, from the youngest to the oldest, from the healthiest to the sickest. And he also tells them, that he's full of confidence 
and has no doubt about the future well-being of each one of them as believers. He's really saying to them, not one of you will be lost at the last day. Not one of you true believers will lose his or her salvation. Not one of them shall fall away. All of them will arrive safely in heaven. And Paul is full of confidence. He's fully persuaded that they will be kept until the day of Jesus Christ. Now why? And here's the answer. God always finishes in full every work that he begins. And Paul is gripped with that biblical divine principle. Paul has absolute confidence in God's work. Yes, the believers live in perilous times. Yes, they're experiencing days of trial and trouble. Yes, there's days when they face personal affliction and hardship. Days when they maybe wonder if they're going to make it. Days when they think perhaps we're not going to stick this out to the end. We might as well quit now. And Paul is telling them, remember, that what has happened to you doesn't depend on you. Don't, don't, don't think that it depends on you. That's wrong thinking. That's misplaced thinking. Look away to Jesus Christ. Because true Christian confidence is in Christ. Remember, Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. Our salvation in Christ has a beginning. And glory to God, it has a wonderful ending. It will end in heaven with Christ for all eternity. And what great encouragement. And it would be very easy to bypass verse 6. We've already touched on it in the past opening messages. But having looked at it again, I want us to think of the grounds of the Christian's confidence. Notice three things or four things here. First of all, the plan of God's salvation. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. Think of those words. That he which hath begun a good work in you. That's a reference to God's salvation. And our salvation is entirely God's work from start to finish. Now remember he's writing to saints. The saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. These people were not born saints. They were not in a state of progression into some form of sainthood by their good works or by their deeds done over time. No, they were born into the world as sinners. Sinners by nature and sinners by practice. Not only were they born sinners, but they lived out their lives of sinners. And then Paul comes preaching the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And the Bible say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Joseph was told by the angel Gabriel, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You see, the gospel of God's grace came. 
And God, through the gospel, effectually calls sinners to himself. And he cleansed them by the power of the precious blood. And he changed them. And, and they were converted. And therefore they've become saints, not by the works of their hands or their own efforts, not over time, but they became saints instantaneously by the grace and goodness of God in the gospel. And I want you to notice something if you look very carefully at the text, that salvation is a good work. That he which hath begun a good work in you. That's how he describes it. That's the adjective. And this is a reference, I believe, to the gracious operation of the Spirit of God in the gospel. The Spirit of God using the word of God. And through that, effectually calls sinners out of spiritual deadness and darkness into the light and the liberty of the gospel. Notice how personal it is. That he which hath begun a good work in you He's thinking of them as individuals. They didn't do this work in their own souls themselves. It wasn't a work done in them by a preacher. It wasn't done by an evangelist or done by the Apostle Paul or done by a church. When Paul went to Philippi, he saw lives changed and transformed. And that work that was wrought within them, he saw that as a good work. The word good means perfect. Remember in the creation story, we believe, of course, in a six literal 24-hour day creation story. We read in Genesis 1 and verse 12, verse 25, the word good. We read in verse 31, of Genesis chapter 1 that God declared what he had made was very good. And the word good there in the Hebrew means perfect. It means complete. In other words, the work of creation was perfect. And God who started that work on the first day finished it on the sixth day and rested on the Sabbath and hallowed it. And you see, it's the same with salvation. Salvation is a good work. And that word good means it's perfect. And what we're saying this morning is God who begins that good work, God will see that that work is finished and brought to completion. Notice also salvation is God's work. I want to make that clear. That he, there's the key word. I would want that word put in capital letters. That he which hath begun a good work in you. You see, the salvation of any sinner, the regeneration of a dead soul into newness of life is entirely the work of God. We didn't contribute to our own salvation. We didn't help God out in any way. We didn't supplement his work by some works of our own or by a bit of our own. No, the Bible says salvation is of the Lord. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Even our faith to believe in Jesus Christ 
That's not something inherent within us. That in itself is a gift from God in the, the act of regeneration. Our salvation is God's work from start to finish. That's why we often say that salvation is all of God. We were, remember, dead in sin. We were spiritual corpses. And if you think of a dead person, they have no life. And, and they can't do anything. And they can't affect the change. See, salvation is exclusively, entirely, eternally God's good work. Can I tell you something else? Salvation is a gracious work. There was nothing prompted God to do it. God was not forced or made to do something that was contrary to his mind and will. Remember, these people who were saints in Christ Jesus were once born sinners and lived as sinners. And all sinners deserve to go to hell for all eternity. They all deserve the wrath of a sin-hating God. We're all sinners out of Christ equally condemned. And why does God do a work in the lives of some in Philippi? And the answer to that question is this. His own sovereign good pleasure and will. He does it for the praise of his name. He does it for the glory of his own gracious purpose. God has chosen sinners in Christ. Before time began. And then by the gospel. God calls the sinner to himself. And God cleanses the sinner. Who trusts in Christ. By the power of the precious blood. And God changes and converts the sinner. Doesn't the Bible say. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ. He's a new creature. All things have passed away. And all things have become new. It's God's good, gracious work to make a man a new sinner in Christ. Let me tell you something else. Salvation's a great work. That he which hath begun a good work on you, that work is profound. That work is personal. It's in you. And this work is powerful. You see, He's talking about in the hearts and lives of individuals. God comes to men and he takes and women and takes out the stony heart. And he gives a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone and he implants a new heart. He implants a love for him. A desire to, to keep his commandments. A, a, a love for the saints of God. A, a, a knowledge of the witness of the spirit. A love for Christ. A hatred for sin. A love for righteousness. It's all about Christ living in us. Didn't the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossians speak about Christ in you, the hope of glory? And not only Christ living in us, but us living in union and communion with him. It's not about man-made religion. It's not about an individual changing his habits or his lifestyle. It's not about an individual getting a new suit or a haircut. 
It's not about just changing his appearance and starting to go to the house of God. It's not about just making a, a profession and saying, you know what, I've asked the Lord Jesus into my heart. Or, 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 or I've decided to follow Jesus and commit myself to him. No, it's all about the work of God's grace in the heart. The work of God to eternally effect a great change and transformation in one's lifestyle. It's really the work of the regenerating power of the Spirit of God that implants that new life. And it's God does this work. That's why I'm suggesting it's a great work. And God doesn't need your help nor mine. It's not that God does so much. And then we have to do our wee bit over time to get over the line and get into heaven. I asked this morning, can a dead man, can a corpse resurrect himself? Can a corpse do things for himself? Can he move? The answer is no. What does a corpse need? He needs new life. He needs a calling. Think of Lazarus dead in the tomb. And Jesus stood outside. And what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. And the resurrection of Lazarus was a good work. That was of God. That was gracious. But it was great because he that was dead has been made alive again. Keep in mind this morning. Learn something. That salvation is all of God. It starts with God. It ends with God. It's all of God and his grace. It's God's work without our aid. And if we're going to be saved from sin's penalty and power and pleasure. And one day from his very presence. Then that salvation is all of God. And that's where many go wrong. And if you go wrong in this fundamental part of the, the, the commencement of the Christian life. Then you'll be wrong in a whole range of areas. So think about the plan of God's salvation. Very quickly, think about the progress of God's salvation. Remember, we're thinking about the grounds of the Christian confidence. If you look at our text, it says, we'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the word perform means to accomplish. Or if you look at a margin in your Bible, will finish it. Literally, God will continue the good work he's begun until that good work is complete. The word perform means to fulfill complete. It means to perfectly finish. In other words, God will put the finishing touches. Think of this. What God starts, he finishes. That ought to encourage us, even in, uh, on a side issue, with the building program. And what God started here, God will finish by his eternal purpose and his decree. And if we are saved by God's grace, and this works of God, and it's a good work, then what we're saying is, we will continue in that grace... By the power of grace. Until that's complete. 
You see, sometimes we think now that we're saved and we've trusted Christ, that God has left us on his own. And we've got to achieve things by our own power and strength and ability. It's now over to us. And we have got to go on. And we have got to do our part because God has done his part. That's not correct. I want you to understand the power of God's grace at work in the life is a non-going experience of that salvation. God who has saved us by his grace not only will sanctify us by his grace but will secure us in heaven by his grace. This ties into the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God who has begun that work will, will finish it. You see, take encouragement. You can't be saved today and lost tomorrow. Really, a person who says that is really saying that, that God who has begun this work can't finish the work he'd begun. We do believe, of course, that true saints will persevere. We, we acknowledge that we're kept by God's power, that the love that we have for Christ, the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, the desire to walk with God, the, the quest for uh, holiness of life, the, the desire to walk the path of Christian obedience and duty. Why do we feel like that? Why do we think like that? Why do we desire that? Because God is at work in us. And yes, in the midst of that, as we strive to glorify and honour God, there'll be times when we'll sin. The times when we'll feel like Peter, remember, he denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. There'll be times when we have trials and troubles. Think of Job. There'll be times when we'll, we'll backslide and our hearts will go cold like David and Samson and we'll think, well, we're not actually going to make it. There'll be times when we doubt. There'll be times when we disobey the Lord. There'll be times when the devil will give us a hard time and we'll be cast down. But think of these verses. Over there in Peter we read, Blessed be the God and Father for Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Remember, Paul's in prison. He could say, Lord, I'm a prisoner. I'm in bonds for the honour of your name. John was in Patmos as an exile for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God. And yet they continued, even though they were facing that, by, by the grace of God that was at work within them. We're not saved by God's grace and kept by our own power. We're not saved by God's grace and have to finish the work by the works of our own hands. Every day we face difficulty. Every day, of course, we face, in a sense, jeopardy. We have fears. Fears that we're not going to make it. Fears that maybe we're not even good enough for heaven. And yet the reality is, if Christ has saved us by his power, 
then he'll keep us by that same power and he will continue that work within us and he will finish it completely. As I've said about the building program, think about building a house. Think about any work. God himself will continue the work he's begun until the day he has finished it perfectly. Put the finishing touches to it when he brings us to glory into heaven. Think thirdly, the power of God's salvation. How can we be so sure? He, he, he says here, being confident. Here's the answer. He's confident because he's got his eye in God's covenant of redemption. Jesus Christ in that covenant was guaranteed by the Father, a people. And they were given to him by the Father. And he was prepared to do all that was necessary in time to effect and accomplish their salvation. And, and, and not only that, but to bring those that the Father gave him home to glory. Wasn't it his prayer? Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. We don't always love him 100%. We don't always stand strong for him. We don't always speak for him. But you know, his love for us will never change. The Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it's not our sin and our backsliding. Yes, that offends him. Yes, that grieves him. That, that affects our communion with him. And I'm not articulating a public license to sin. But what I'm saying is that nothing can sever our union from him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's an interesting little story told about Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian was in the house of interpreter and the fire was burning, and uh, in one side of the fireplace, the devil, of course, was pouring water on. And you know what happens when the water's poured in fire? It starts to smoke and it starts to go out. But the fire kept burning. Why did it keep burning? Because there was one on the other side of that fireplace who was pouring the oil on. And the devil, of course, is a powerful foe against the people of God. And, and he's full of subtlety to bring us down. But he's not all powerful. Nothing can sever our union with Christ. And not only the um, covenant of redemption, but think of the prayers of Christ. Remember, um, the Lord Jesus said to Peter that he had prayed for him. Satan, Satan has desired to sift you as weak, but I've prayed for you. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. The devil, of course, is the accuser of the brethren. The devil will drag up our sins against us. And if we think about Martin Luther in the dream, are these your sins, Martin? Yes. He was truly guilty of them. He knew he was a sinner. He knew what he had done. And he knew he was accountable. But, but remember the message. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin 
And it's Christ that died for us. It's Christ that rose again. It's Christ that's seated at God's right hand. It's Christ that prays for us. It's Christ who's our advocate in heaven. And he has never lost a case. And we can plead the merits of the blood. And we can say to the devil, the accuser of the brethren, yes, these are our sins. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Christ's intention, of course, is to bring many sons home to glory. If Christ died for the ungodly, and Christ on the cross suffered the wrath of God, and Christ paid the price for our sin, then it's impossible for one of his own true children to be lost at the last. And as I've said, this is not a license to sin. This is not an excuse. This is not to say, well, you can be saved and go out and enjoy drugs and take drink and dance and fill your heart and mind with the dirt and filth of the world. This work of grace brings about a real sanctifying desire. This work of grace causes to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And even though we face trials and of times of sorrow and tears and trouble and temptation in the midst of it all, God never gives up. And God continues this work. And he works by his power. And he uses these things that we have talked about to give help and encouragement. One final thing. The peace of God's salvation. He says being confident of this very thing. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in God. That gives us great assurance. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's in prison, remember. He could die at any moment. He could face death any day. And here he's writing about joy. He's writing about rejoicing. See, Paul's cup was full. Paul always looked on the bright side. Paul was confident in the Lord. Paul knew he was going to make it to heaven. And the saints in Philippi were going to make it to heaven. Not because of him. Not because what they had done. But it was because of what he had done. Paul knew he would never be in hell. He knew he would never be lost. He had gotten assurance that he had a home in heaven. And that confidence filled him. And you know, you could be confident. He was saying to these saints, you could be confident living in Philippi. With all the difficulties. With all the busyness of the devil at work. With all the ungodly men that were there. And the lawless spirit of the age. Look away from self. Look, look away from your situation. Get your eyes in the Savior. Notice the words as we finish. Until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a day of termination. This world is not going to last forever. Human life will not last forever. There's a day when we learn the world will end. And it's all tied in, of course, to the, the second coming of Christ. And even if we die before Jesus Christ comes, our death is but the doorway, or the vegetable, as Spurgeon said, into glory in heaven. There's a day of termination coming. It's until the day of Christ. And God has set that day. We don't know the times. But also it's a day of transformation. Because in that day, we'll not only be brought into heaven, but in that day, we'll be with Christ for all eternity. On that day, we'll be like him. Let me ask this morning, 
What is your confidence in? What are you trusting in for now and for eternity? And if you can say, I'm trusting in Christ, then just remember, as you continue, take this thought, God's working in me. And take this thought, God will finish the work that he's begun. And God will give me grace to bring me all the way home to heaven. And you know, I know of no greater confidence this morning. The grounds of the Christian's confidence, it's rooted in the plan of God, in the progress of God in the soul, in the power of God at work, and in the peace and encouragement that God alone can bring that our eternal security in Christ is real. And may the Lord bless these few truths to you this morning.